is up internet. A gray heron once told me all gray herons are liars, so is that a truth or a lie? My name is Matthew Kroll. And I'll be your guide. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Boy and the Heron. Uh, as I joked to our guest this week uh, on uh, Viatex, and I was very impressed with myself, by the way, I might, I might add, uh, this would make a great title for an episode of The Wire. Uh, welcome to our guest, uh, Zach Borden. The last time we saw you, buddy, was on our Blinded by the Light episode, which you quite rightly pointed out, as time is a flat circle, was approximately four years ago. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> Zach is- I, a- I, I just personally think I did such a good job on that episode- you're like, no, no one's going to top Zach. You know what? Let's yeah. <laughs> let's see who can really rise to the cream of the crop. Let's bring another guest and let's 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 give someone else a turn before we bring back the master. So, <laughs> well, well we're I, I appreciate I appreciate the uh, the ego boost. The, the voter Welcome confidence. back, buddy. Welcome back. Zach, of course, uh, you work in and around the film industry. We have to be a little bit vague here so we don't violate any NDAs here. But you have worked <laughs> in and around animation, in and around toy merchandising, in and around movie movie production in general again i'm being as vague as possible this is true yes um so i am curious how you've been for the last uh, four years since we saw you what, you, <laughs> uh, what have you been watching see. what's been happening oh you know <laughs> dystopia yeah it has been a bit of a dystopia. general dystopia yeah um what's been exciting you what's what what have you been watching that's getting you well, really I, gotta say, I, I mean we will get into it but this this film has been exciting me this is has been my most anticipated film of the year so i'm very excited you guys had me having me on and to talk about it oh well i'm i you're also quite a uh, miyazaki fan as i recall that is correct um for nobody will know this but zach and i have a long-running text chain which involves a lot of simpsons memes a lot of anime memes a lot of movie memes uh that that has run for probably the last seven or eight years now uh i think is that right zach yeah i've eight years now D- matt would you want to join that uh so I love you both. Um, no, I feel a it's polite not, no coming. I appreciate either. the honesty, Matthew. It's me because I am on too many goddamn group chat with like and like with different combinations of different people. I don't know if you all experience this, but it's like there'll be four people in this one, then three in this one, but then five, but then one is the same as the other four. Like, and you're just I I I. I needed to stop ringing and buzzing and things, especially. <laughs> I, I love I, a good I meme. I appreciate the honesty. Yes. So let me. Let me just text Matthew. Right great, now. great. This is, all right, here we go. And, We're in the mood. Actually, on that note, sometimes, uh, Zach, I have to admit this to you now, sometimes I will copy and paste things from other chains into our chain. So if I, I can make, tell sometimes yeah. when it's a big block. Yeah, it's a big block. <laughs> and sometimes... Like, wow, Shahir, Shahir, I know, is a fast texter, but is he that fast? Yeah. Sometimes as well, Zach, uh, there'll be something I'll text you, and then I'll go... That would make a great tweet, and so then, and then I'll text you to let you know that I'm going to tweet what we've just said, and I'll just copy and paste re- our text into a tweet. But I, I appreciate you here. You always, you always give me credit. You always <laughs> let me. I'm not, I'm not on, I'm not on Twitter or social media. Um, but how the how the textual sausage is made. <laughs> also, speaking of sausage, it's the holidays. It is the holidays. Holiday it sausage, is right. So this technically, I think, will come out on Christmas Eve. Oh, nice. Um, a great gift for everyone. What a lovely gift. We got this for you, dear listeners. Or it will be the the eve of Christmas Eve over the on Nebula. The return of Zach Borden. That's, that's, that's right. Every, everyone's wish list. <laughs> I, listen, it's, it's right there. It's, Santa, it's, Santa told me himself. So. With well, a well, bullet. A nice Jewish boy. That's what he told me. <laughs> well, on that note, I do have one email that I want to get to in a second. But I, I Matt, you have been pushing for a Christmas episode, I, I guess, this will kind of cover it, but I'm curious. Uh, we've been having a back and forth a little bit about, you know, what could be the best Christmas movie for us to discuss. Uh, I don't know if we'll actually get to it this year. Maybe it'll be after Christmas. It'll be a New Year's movie or whatever it is. <laughs> Who knows? But I'm curious uh, for both of you, what is the go-to Christmas uh, Christmas movie? Zach? Hmm. I'm going to have to – you know what? Home Alone's a classic. I'm gonna I'm gonna say that. Yeah, it's one of those one of those movies. You know, when I grew up with it, obviously, like many 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 millennium millennials. Excuse me. How how dare I refer to us as millenniums? But um, <laughs> one of those one of those drop the remote movies where I'll see it on. Yeah, and uh, watch a few minutes at least. Yeah, uh, 
I mean, I've, I've discussed a great length. Uh, we've had Randy Cornfield on here before. We've talked about Jingle All the Way is probably my my go to though. Good choice. Good choice. Uh, I was just saying to Zach while we were setting up that the one that's still on my list for a rewatch because I bought it the second that it that I saw it in theaters last year. I pre ordered it and it came in last last January was Violent Night. <laughs> that's uh david arbor right is a, yep, is yes. a violent santa claus yeah it's it, like i said before that is a film violent that, and alcoholic santa claus yeah that is a film that understood the assignment there's a you know what i think there's there's probably a case to be made for a tradition of violent santa uh christmas movies and i'm thinking of violent night rare exports and I, there was I a just mel mentioned gibson rare exports to matt yeah and there's yep. a there's a mel gibson mel gibson plays uh santa claus at one point as well as, as an angry santa claus i think it's called yep. fat man or something like that yes also uh, violent night not to be confused with this year's 2023 silent night a john woo film which apparently is terrible that's true that's true <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's uh, woo. That's woo. woo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, email that came into us uh, this week, I just want to cover as well. Very quick one from Alex of Ohio, uh, who says, Hello, Mattinger here. I watched the holdovers and thought it was okay, but after listening to your episode, I felt like I missed something the first time. So I went <sighs> back to the theater to watch it again with a new appreciation for the details. I think this is a movie that is better on a second watch, but I would not have done the rewatch so soon if it was not for y'all's discussion. So thanks for that. Thanks for offering your insights each week. Alex of Ohio. Thanks, uh, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Um, uh, Zach, did you get a chance to see the holdovers yet? I did. Did you love it? I did. I did really like it. Um, it was very, I thought it was very bittersweet. Yeah. Um, I thought the acting was outstanding. Um, and I'm a sucker for those sort of like teacher, student mentor movies. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really liked how Alexander Payne pulled a grindhouse with adding in post the uh, right. you know, scratches and blemishes. And even in the opening titles, the projection jitter, I noticed. Yeah. Uh, and But also, obviously, the slow fades and um, or just how he shot it like a 1960 style film. Yeah, there's a lot of fun it was, details. It was very well done. I thought I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm I'm very much looking forward to a rewatch. That might also be something. Is it is it on streaming yet? Do we know? I, it's not I, on streaming. It's on digital digital download already. Okay. I, so you, can, I, you can spend twenty bucks or thirty bucks to own it now. Well, Matt. I I wish not yet. I okay. Here's a nightmare scenario. I'll tell uh, the corpo overlords. I will pay thirty dollars. Sight unseen. Well, not sight unseen. I need to see the film and want it. But for a movie's like digital release, if I also would get a physical one when it came at the out. same time. I hear yeah. you. That's me. I always, I always wait for the physical. Like I'll 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 give them the money earlier. Like I'll do it, but then like they can take two months or whatever, and then send me the the Blu-ray. I just I I that's it makes me angry when it's like oh it's on digital for two months and you can't buy it physical. Right. But I I also am very aware of the fact that I suffer from choice paralysis, which is that uh, I'm always thinking like. Is this the best version of the Blu-ray? Like, is there another version with a better trans or transfer or better features or anything like that? And I often like will hold off buying until I know, uh, you know, like for example, the Oppenheimer Blu-ray has come out, which is sold out. Apparently, it's very difficult to get a hold of. Yep. I know I want a copy of it, but uh, I'm also like, is I'm always a little bit cautious about the first release that the studio does for a movie like that. And I'm like, I know in a year's time or two years time or whatever, there's going to be a version of that movie that comes out that you know, a version of the Blu-ray that is like probably packed with, you know, a, a million more extra features or as a bit of transfer or whatever you, or if it appears on the Criterion the bomb, Collection. The Bomb XL edition. The yeah. Bomb XL Oppenheimer, edition. Oppenheimer, The Bomb XL edition. Actually, I will say the holdovers physical copy does not release until July 1st. Right. So it's a little <laughs> ways away. But but there is a digital copy right now. Um, Christmas in July. Yeah. Just Great. before we go on, I didn't realize this was the case, but uh, they have not released Oppenheimer in Japan as of yet. They've been negotiating the release of uh, Oppenheimer in Japan for the last few months. Uh, and I think they've finally come to an agreement that they will release it in Japan. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, like, I, I think that's a fascinating factor in this movie is that is that they were, well, I don't know if it was sensitivity or just cultural issues or what what the concern. I know. Actually, sorry. I understand what the concern was. We're very aware of what the concern was. Um, but it was interesting that the movie of a movie of that scale wasn't automatically released to Japan. 
um, you know, a, a very large market for American movies. Um, so I, you know, I don't know what either of you all think about that, but it was, just, I, I, it was just sort of startling to me to realize that they had just negotiated the release of the film just a few weeks the distributor, ago. It's a small Japanese distributor to my understanding and that they, they released a statement like sort of what you said, Shahir, you know, you know, cultural and very sensitive issues, but they felt it was a great movie or an important movie to see. And they want, you know, people in Japan who are interested can see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can also see a world where like it just doesn't release there. Like, I mean, yeah. I know it's going to at some point, but I'm saying like that would not shock me or. or, or... I, I understand. I understand. And I, I could certainly understand uh, a world where a different movie didn't get released in Japan because of its cultural sensitivity issues. However, this is a Christopher Nolan movie and arguably one of the biggest movies of the year. Uh, I was surprised that they had held off the release for so long because I imagine there's yeah. a there's a cultural there's a there's a sort of cinephilia demand for a film like that in almost Maybe. every market. Maybe uh, I mean I I also would say that uh, and I'm again I'd only speak for myself but like I, if I don't know I I wouldn't no matter how good or big or or profitable a film was in that particular case. With all of the minutia and 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 mega uh, events around it, I can still totally see being like, nah. Yeah. Well, like <laughs> we had this conversation around Isle of Dogs, whether uh, Isle of Dogs would get a Japanese or how the Isle of Dogs Japanese release would go, given that it was an American film set in Japan with nuclear imagery that yep. also plays with the language in sort of fascinating ways where characters are speaking Japanese, but there is a translator character translating what the Japanese is being said to the audience. And mm -hmm. in a Japan, in a Japanese dub, how would all of that work? Right. Uh, uh, so I was very curious about that. But uh, to move us right along, this is also the second Japanese release film we've done in two weeks' time. Last week we did Godzilla Minus One, and That's this right. is our first Miyazaki film uh, no. on the roster. Gasp! Um, it is. It is actually because the last I'm Miyazaki honored, film, then. the last Miyazaki film that came out was The Wind Rises, which came out in 2013 before the podcast had even begun. And we haven't done any retrospective films. I don't think we've done Spirited Away, um, Totoro, anything like that. I uh, could have sworn we did Princess, but I, maybe I'm just I'm. I don't know. Well, before we get started, where are we on the Miyazaki train, uh, so to speak? <laughs> Zach, take start. Start us off. Choo choo. Tell it. Tell choo -choo. us about your your history with Miyazaki or what you think of that's that. That's a great. I was going. I that's a, such a great question. I'm glad you asked. So, uh, my history with Miyazaki goes back to middle school. Actually, it goes back a little bit further. So. I'm an old man millennial now, um, but I remember um, when the dub for My Neighbor Totoro came out, I remember like Saturday morning they were showing TV spots for it. And I was like seven or eight years old and I was obviously a young man then um, and I, I thought it looked corny. Uh, I didn't have an interest in seeing it and um, it's just so random. Then I randomly thought of the movie when I was 11 years old. I remember you know, leaving a movie with, one night with my, my family and one of my friends and the blockbuster was next door. And I thought like, whatever happened to that? I called it, I didn't call it Totoro. I called it Totaro. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I just randomly thought about it. And I wanted to see it. And I mm. rented it that night at blockbuster. Right. And I watched that like several times that weekend and right. I loved it. And, um, I was so blown away. Um, you know, obviously I grew up with you no know, cartoon animation and Disney animation, but, um, it's, it, it became like very easily a favorite then had my mom go out eventually and buy my own copy of the VHS of my neighbor Totoro. And, um, there was a wonderful resource, um, called Nausicaa.net. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I think it still might exist as like a wiki now, huh. but, um, see back in the old days, kids, like you couldn't just go on YouTube and find like clips of movies or all these imagery. Like you, if you wanted to see something that was not readily available in your market, you had, you had to dream about it or just get <laughs> the scantest information on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, but it was right around this time that at the time Disney bought the rights to dub mm -hmm. the Miyazaki films. And so then I got very excited. It was about like a year, year and a half later, Disney did the first one. They did uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh -huh. They put that on VHS, and I love that. And then um, I remember very distinctly um, on that, they had a trailer for Laputa Castle in the Sky. Right. It said, coming in 1999. And I was waiting all of 1999. They never <laughs> – they kept it on the shelf for a few years, actually. But um, my, my dad took me to the Museum of Modern Art. They did a Miyazaki retrospective. Yeah. So I saw the subtitled – 
um, Japanese language of Castle in the Sky in 1999. Right. <laughs> Again, okay. I, I am an old man. And then, um, Shahir, you're familiar with the, I think, the New York Children's Film Festival. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. They did the premiere a few months later, uh, the English dub that Disney did. Okay. And um, I took my mom and sister to that like three, four months later. That yeah. was the open night film in the year 2000. Um, but, and I've, I've just been a fan ever since. And so, that's it. <laughs> that's a long winded explanation for me. Yeah. Well, how about you, Matt? Where, where does Miyazaki fit in, in your world? Kind of opposite. I was a, I was a later bloomer. I think I, I started what in 2004 was Howl's yeah. moving yeah. castle. Yeah. I just went and saw that kind of on a whim and it, uh, blew my mind and I was like, Oh, I gotta see, I gotta see you know, more of this man's work. So I kind of went back and I've, I've, I've dabbled in and out ever since. Um, but that was my first one. Uh, and then I've just sort of like popped all around as I can. Um, but I hadn't realized either. Cause I don't, I'm bad at paying attention. Uh, I hadn't realized that this is the first feature in 10 years. I remember Boro the caterpillar, as but short. that was a short. Yeah. Um, and then I never saw Ponyo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I've, I've you know I've, I've princess uh, Kiki's spirited so I've, I, I'm there I just you're there I, I got there late I feel like yeah. I think better that's late of, than never I think that's one of the things with Miyazaki is that it's um, his significance in both animation and children's feature films is kind of impossible to deny so I have a child obviously we watched Totoro when when my son was of age enough to kind of appreciate it uh, we've watched Kiki's he loves Nausicaa of the Wind by the way uh, he absolutely adores that film. Um, but in, in terms of my growing up, yeah, I'm sort of the same as you, which is that I think the first thing I saw was Spirited Away, uh, then Howl's Moving Castle, then Ponyo, then uh, I went back and saw Nausicaa um, and uh, Totoro before that. I also have been to Japan and went to the Studio Ghibli Museum as well, uh, which is oh, incredible. Wow. Um, and I think, well, Shahir wins. Uh, well, there's, there's something, <laughs> some fan I am. Yeah. There's something interesting about, uh, Ghibli in relation to America, I guess, because John Lasseter was really the person who really, uh, spearheaded, uh, Miyazaki's being distributed in America along with Disney. And, you know, the fact that there's this sort of giant Ghibli museum, it's not giant, but it, you know, this delightful Ghibli museum in Japan kind of makes you think that there's a, a sort of correlation between, uh, Ghibli and Disney. However, it's never more evident that that is not the case when you go visit the museum, which is that the Disney, you know, Disney experience is largely driven by merchandise, um, you know, like consumerism, crappy food, uh, all that, all that, all the stuff that we associate with going to Disneyland. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the sort of almost uh, in comparison, sort of vulgar, exploitation of the character of the character's intellectual property you know like it really feels like we're going to milk this for all it's worth when you go to a disney um <laughs> disney property but when you go to ghibli there's this kind of like quiet beauty to the place it's a very quiet place and it's not like driven by loud sounds and hey buy this and all that sort of stuff it is really driven by hey here's totoro here's a version of totoro that like is beautiful and you can just sit with totoro and like be chill and and it's it's it almost feels um peaceful and serene by comparison and and i think that marks the distinction between disney and ghibli now disney is obviously uh um an, an entire monolith uh compared to what ghibli is although ghibli is very successful um but the fact that uh you know Miyazaki's output in the last few years have been kind of more akin to what Martin Scorsese's output has been, which is that they're entirely self-reflective. Um, they're more about an internal autobiography uh, than they are about um, sort of bigger and louder that we would maybe see. Now, again, I say Disney's a monolith. We, Disney's not driven by one particular director or anything like that. But, you know, if we just look to, say, an analog in Studio Pixar, um, you know, most of the films have recently been sequels and um, rehashes of uh, previous intellectual properties versus Ghibli, which is a little more, as I say, reflective and um, autobiographical in a way. Scorsese and Miyazaki one year apart. Yeah, it's almost the same age. And um yep. and I would I would really before we even start the conversation on the boy and the heron uh really think a lot about a movie like The Irishman alongside uh The Boy and the Heron. 
um, mm. which I think will drive this conversation a little bit. Um, but Matt, could is you it a, is it a, is it a problem if I've never once thought about the Irishman since I've watched it oh. again? It it may be, it may be. All right, I'll try Maybe. to keep up. Yeah, yeah. I I I recently rewatched the Irishman and and I was like, man, this is such a comforting movie. I don't know why, but I'm like, like just the fact that it's three and a half After hours. Twiddling long, your ring, here. Yeah, I, I'm showing my age, but like the fact that it's three and a half hours long really gives me a lot of comfort. I don't know why. I just sit, I put it on, and I'm like, oh man, I'm into this. I'm like happy to sit down and watch this all the way through. And all there's, right. there's something about it that like makes it work for me. Just knowing that it's like slow, languid, you know, like thoughtful, introspective. I love all of that. But but. Matt, could you tell us what uh, Miyazaki's latest film, which supposedly uh, shouldn't exist given that he retired 10 years earlier, That's could you right. tell us what The Boy and the Heron is about? I sure can. The Internet Movie Database defines The Boy and the Heron as follows. A young boy named Mahito, yearning for his mother, ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead. There, death comes to an end and life finds new beginning. A semi-autobiographical fantasy from the mind of Hayao Miyazaki. That's what it so, is. Did you guys see it subs or dubs? I saw it subbed. I Perfect. saw it subbed. I saw it dubbed because I took my eight-year-old son to see it. And uh, we we had a conversation about subs versus dubs. And um, we are prepping him to watch his first dubbed film. I think what we're going to do is we're going to watch Nausicaa uh, in, the, uh, in the subs. Um, but, uh, you know, he's still a, he's still an early reader, so to speak. So he was sort of worried that he wouldn't be able to keep up with the movie. Um, so we did see it, uh, dubbed, uh, which I, you know, look, there, there've been lots of really great dubs of Miyazaki films. I think there's lots of conversations around, um, how the Miyazaki dubs. And I think there's actually the, the, the original Totoro dub is no longer available. Is that right? Uh, Zach, you'd probably, that's correct. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not a fan of the dub version, not because I don't think the quality of the voice acting is any good. Um, you know, of course, in this version, Christian Bale, Robert Pattinson, Florence Pugh is in this. Um, I think uh, William Defoe is even in this and Dave Bautista. Um, I think the thing is, uh, I feel like the dubs always feel like they sit on top of the movie as opposed to feel internally part of the the, the character mm. motivations. They, there's just something about the way Miyazaki's characters speak that doesn't quite line up with an English translation. What, it, what's it, interesting is that um, the Pelican character in the film, mm -hmm. the Japanese voice actor sounds like Willem Dafoe. So, oh, really? And I knew Willem Dafoe is in the English dub. So as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, that's Willem Dafoe. That's got to be Willem Dafoe in the English <laughs> dub. Also, I but think it's that not. Oh, isn't it? The, the heron is Robert Pattinson. No, 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 no. Uh, I think Zach is talking about the pelican, not the not the. Oh, heron. the pelican! The big, the big I'm pelican. so sorry. Yes. Yeah, the yeah, one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get correct, it right. Correct, correct. Ah, the creature eating again. the the wara wara. Um, yeah. But yeah, the Robert Pattinson voice is very impressive because you would listen to it and not uh, believe that that was Robert Pattinson. Uh, I was anyway. at I was at the Nebula holiday party. And Patrick and Nando and all these film uh, YouTubers, like I, normally I'm I'm pure subtitle all the way for these things, but they would not stop talking about how amazing the dub was. Oh, like, wow. and and so it, it, it's 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 I'm very happy I saw it in subtitle, but like there's been so much glowing recommendation of this particular dub that I think the next time I do watch this movie, uh, I will, I will definitely be trying it Me that too. way. Uh, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm just on the other <laughs> side of this, which is that yeah. I, I've seen the, uh, the dub and I would recommend the subs, uh, over it any day of the week, no matter how good that performance is. Sure. Uh, but Zach, uh, guest of the show, tell us what you thought of the boy in the hair on. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I will say I, it is my favorite Miyazaki film since Spirited Away. Wow. Um, so, um, it's, what's interesting about it is that I left the theater and I had to process it. Not, I'm trying. I'm trying. It's it's interesting. Like I'm, I've I've gotten better articulating it, but like it, I had to like let it wash over me. Mm. And um, it's obviously a very personal film. Um, it there's certainly it's certainly profound. There's certainly quite a depth to it. But what's interesting is I've asked, you know, I've I've spoken to about three, four other people who have also seen the film. They had a very similar reaction. That they're like, oh, like what was that? Or I have to like think about it. Um, but it's, 
if this is indeed his last film, which actually it may not be, according yeah. to certain reports, uh, I, I think he does go out on a high note. And I th- think what I also really appreciate about it is that I wouldn't necessarily call it a, past- a pastiche exactly, mm. but um, for fans like me, fans of uh, Miyazaki's work, you you see a lot of other films that he's made within it. Mm. Um, it's like certainly I was reminded of Spirited Away, Go obviously <laughs> the main character going into this other <laughs> netherworld, um, the climax. Um, uh, I won't. I know we'll probably get into spoilers a little bit, but I'll just say that reminded me of the climax of Castle in the Sky. Um, certainly the World War II setting reminded, you know, evoked Totoro. Um, even though I think that was a little bit, Totoro took place a little bit after World War II. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you could sort of see just, just other elements of things he's done. But it wasn't, like I just said, it wasn't, it wasn't like a pastiche. It wasn't like greatest hits. It was, it felt like a summation. Vibes. Um, and, yes, vibes. Yes, vibes. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, but I, I really like the film and I do, I do want to revisit it soon. Matt, how about you? So uh, I went and saw this uh, at ye old uh, Lincoln Center, my, my, my fave. Uh, I saw it in IMAX, which because it was the only one that was available. Uh, I don't like normally seeing films that aren't <laughs> shot in IMAX on IMAX. I just don't. I mean, it's fine, but whatever. Uh, but I it, this was an interesting go because and maybe there's another reason why I, I, I'm really interested in seeing the dub. IMAX subs are hard when you don't have a great seat. Oh, they're all the way down at the bottom <laughs> of the IMAX and you're at and the top. So, no, I'm I'm no, I'm all the way. I'm near the bottom. Right. So I have but I'm reading, but I'm doing I, I, this is great for an audio medium. I am rotating my head sort of like about, it's so big that like my eyes won't like <laughs> and, and so that was a little bit distracting. That's not the film's fault, of course. But the good part about this entire thing was Obviously, Miyazaki films kind of teleport you into another place and you sort of they, they wash over you and whatever. And in IMAX, I mean, it's just it's it's you're in it. It's like you have no vision outside of the frame that they're presenting. I can imagine the fire sequence at the beginning oh, in IMAX God. is is incredible. Insane. Um, and it was really, really lovely. I. I appreciated in this one in particular um, the. I won't say <coughs> this sounds like a, a detriment, but I, it is not a, a lack of focus on, especially as the movie progresses on like a procedural plot, like stuff happens and things right. go forward. But like none of those things are important. It's the emotional journey of who he's talking to, when, who they are in other timelines, except like and, and like. There's there's such a strong emotional catharsis through that. And when you put it next to all of the metatextual uh, information about Miyazaki's life and 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 just and his career, I mean, you could you could as you as we talk about this movie, we get into spoilers. We can definitely start going into things like the does X, Y and Z mean this about his current day life? Like there's there's things where I feel like it traverses. Even beyond the historical stuff, his mother was sick with tuberculosis, uh, you know, uh, the the war, like all that stuff. That's all there and present. And you can see even even in the IMDb description, a semi-autobiographical fantasy. Um, But there's other stuff like especially with uh, Grand Uncle Mm. uh, that just sort of feels very like. I, I, there's a specific part I want to talk about as we get into spoilers, but uh, Grand Uncle as an allegory, not necessarily for Miyazaki the man, but like Miyazaki's career, mm. uh, is just really, really fucking interesting in my opinion. And so, like, so while like it worked as a regular Miyazaki movie for me, which is always exceptional, and then it felt like there was this additional layer on the cake that was like, oh, and you can think about it this way and i'm like oh geez it was it was very 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 cool i liked this it a lot true. so Cheer? um what did you guys think of before mojito the, the main character goes into sort of this alternate world surreal universe um i guess sort of the first half hour um i i i i, I, I didn't want to i don't want to say it was like slow but i feel like it's a lot of exposition you sort of need a little patience if that's fair to say 
I mean, yes, but it is marked by like an immediate tragedy, you know, again, uh, and we're sort of making the demarcation between this and Disney, but like an immediate tragedy, not uh, not unlike Finding Nemo, uh, where you're kind of watching, you know, the way that tragedy, you know, Mojito's mother dies in a fire, um, uh, manifests itself in his character and I actually found it pretty engaging. It's actually the second half that I had not problems with, but I was I was sort of more um, like you guys, sort of trying to figure out my reaction to it. And I I, I did something that I uh, normally in a situation like that I would go and re- rewatch the film just to kind of reaffirm or reevaluate. But I I kind of chose not to, even though I had time to, um, because I wanted to allow myself the space to explore the film without ha- without having to rewatch it and think about what it meant to me. And there's a couple of things. So first off, I, I, I took my son to see it. And um, just an immediate thing, which is that my son came out of it with almost the same reaction as the Marvels, which is like, he's like, I, it was cool. I didn't quite get it, but you know, whatever. Um, but he, you could tell that his reaction to the Marvels was much more like, I'm going to throw this away and not think about it anymore. Uh, whereas his reaction to... Normal reaction... Uh, what's that? Yeah, common reaction. Yeah. reaction for anybody. <laughs> and I'm always film. worried that like I'm not reading my reactions into into the way he's reading a movie. You know, like I'm trying to like yeah. ensure that he's kind of thinking about it the way he wants to think about it. Uh, so if he loved the Marvels, that would have been cool. Um, but he has not talked about the Marvels or thought about it or spoken any of it. But like a couple of oh, days yes. ago, after we saw um, the Boy and the Heron, um, there was a thing which which I noticed as he was watching it, which was that. There were images in the film that got under his skin and are going to stay there whether he likes it or not. And, um, for example, there's a sequence once they go into the – we can get into spoilers here. This, this is a movie that's very difficult to discuss without discussing spoilers. Um, but there's a sequence in the start of the mo- movie – or it's sort of maybe – in the, a quarter in when the Heron invites uh, Mojito into his world, into the tower. And then we see uh, uh, Mojito's mother, who the Heron says has been waiting for him. And then when Mojito touches his mother, the, the image fades away into a liquid and Mojito gets very upset by this. And my, my, you know, I'll say my son is very attached to his mother as he should be. Um, And I could tell as he was watching that, that scene really affected him mm. in a way that I haven't really seen him be affected by a movie. Mm. And then he talked about it a few days later. He was like, you know, I'm still thinking about that sequence. He says, like, that was a really mean thing to do. And um, it was a really scary moment when uh, Mojito's mother melted away. And he was like, he, I could see him negotiating in his head how to navigate that. And like, yeah. it affected him in a profound way, um, which is that I think he's going to be thinking about that for a while from now on. Um, that's that's going to be his <laughs> more meaningful version of the fireball in the last unicorn for me. Right, yeah. It's also his like villain origin point, maybe. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I wanted to say this. Let which me is, make note of that. Uh, another thing is that um, I thought a lot about um, Masaki Yusa's film Mind Game, which is a film I've talked about on this podcast before, a film I absolutely adore, and one that is basically, you know, in the same realm, uh, jumping into like a spirit realm, a sort of fantasy world. But what's interesting about that is that film sets you up to do that in the very first few frames. And this film doesn't quite do that. So when it gets into this strange world with unusual rules, you are, you know, there's a part of you, I think, instinctually trying to piece it together. It's it's like it's a puzzle that needs to be solved. And the more I've sat with the movie afterwards, the more I've been thinking about the idea that it's not a puzzle meant to be solved. It is a rendition of an image that is meant to be uh, enjoyed. And mm. observed, and not, but, but not necessarily solved. Like, you can even find interviews with Miyazaki where he says, I don't really understand what this is. I just felt compelled to do <laughs> I it. I just made it. I just made it. And I feel compelled to kind of like put these images out in the world. And yes, there are sometimes corollaries between, you know, his autobiography and and what the film is trying to do. There's lots of uh, points that have pointed to the, gra- the, the grand uncle with his sort of blocks of... Um, uh, you know, his tower blocks that he's been assembling as uh, renditions of Miyazaki reflecting upon his career and what it mm. means to be. But I also, the, I think to me, there's something futile in trying to piece it together in that way. And it's something more interesting to do what kind of my son is doing, which is just feel the movie 
and feel how it affects you in certain places. Because there are moments where there's a moment in this movie where where one of the characters accepts, learns about the fate of what their lives is going to be, and then accepts that fate because they decided that that fate is more beautiful than the possibility of what it of the death that it right. brings with it. And I and I kind of was just more touched by that than trying to assemble the pieces of the film. Um, and then in the other way, I was sort of just in awe of the fact that you know Miyazaki. I, I haven't seen The Wind Rises. I I, I will watch it uh, after this. Um, but I'm told that you know The Wind Rises is probably the most autobiographical film uh, that he's made. And then to and, and you know he famously announced his retirement after that. And then came back and was compelled to make this thing that even he doesn't quite understand, and even he doesn't know what it what it's what it's trying to do. But it it exists in the world and it's for us to wrestle with and i think i want to wrestle with it in a way that is more akin to visiting the the ghibli museum which is that you just sit next to totoro and kind of soak in the moment as opposed to mm. trying to decipher it well i think uh, the, the beautiful thing is you can kind of do both you can do both i, I yeah. just i think the more you unpack what the imagery means the less meaningful it will become oh i i strongly disagree with okay. that at so, least on a personal level uh like the like there's there I, like your description of like sort of like experiencing it from like the Toto uh, mm -hmm. the the Ghibli uh, Museum mm -hmm. like is awesome. And like I think that's super fun, too. And I feel like I got to do a lot of that while watching it and just because, again, in the moment I wasn't piecing. I wasn't sort of like pulling it apart and trying to figure things out. I was just like, ah, like, you know, as Zach vibes. But like the the. Afterward, when I was thinking about it and looking at, uh, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, Miyazaki has said about the film, etc. I find it more fascinating to think about. And I think it's less like putting pieces together. Like, I, I don't think I agree with the it's not a puzzle to be solved. But I think the act of like. Seeing things in there that maybe he didn't even see as a viewer, like and he, because he is so close to both the work and his life, like all of all art obviously has elements. If we create something of ourselves hidden right. in it, whether we know it or not. Um, and I don't think, for instance, like Grand Uncle is the direct connection to him. He's not like, this is me. But like, <laughs> it'd be really hard for him as an artist to have made the thing and not have there be some reflection. Also, the thing I want, I was really excited to talk about that I, I thought was interesting. So we, we've talked about his son. Mm -hmm. um, why Goro? am I blanking on his name? Goro. Goro. Goro, Goro thank yeah. you. Uh, champion of Mortal Kombat. But Goro, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, Goro has tried making films before and made them. Mm -hmm. And Miyazaki has has traditionally been like, that was a very hard film to make. Like he's never been <laughs> hyper complimentary. And, and and overall, it seems I have not seen any of Goro's films, but it seems like they're not to the level of his father. And there was something that and that's also fine. But there was also sort of that moment of like grand uncle, like I can pass this all on to you like da 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 da. And the and the son basically or the, the boy being like. No, like, like th what I want that's is this a great, thing. That's it's a great interpretation. Like I just, I, and I saw that and I was like, it, it's, it's weird. Like it's, it's the, it, it could be read as a passing of a torch or the attempt to pass of a torch, but then not passing the torch and having that be entirely okay. And well, what, maybe for the best, like, I don't know. It was just, I, I what, what's interesting is that one of, Goro's films, so he has, I think he's made like three or four for Ghibli, but one was um, from Up on Poppy Hill, mm. which is, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good movie. It's, it's like a very small scale, like story. I think it was like based on a book, but um, Goro directed it. Uh, Miyazaki, though, did the storyboards and he wrote the screenplay. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not on the father's level, but I thought, I think that's, I haven't, I haven't seen it since it's come out pretty much, but yeah. and that was like, anyway, in America like 10 years ago, but um, yeah, that's, that's. Kind of makes me want to go back and revisit it now, Matt, based on your... <laughs> Which is, and again, I don't think I'm right. Like, I don't think that's like, this is you a definitive right. thing that he was what he was going to do. But like, I feel like there's fun and 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 enrichment to be mined from... If you're, if you're, if you're interested in the man's life who made the movie, 
like there's interesting things you could possibly try to piece together as an audience member to get to know him in a way that you're never going to get to know or like a sliver, you know, like, right. I think that's very interesting. The, the reason I say, say that I don't think it's going to be particularly fruitful is that there's it's it's such an open text that I think there's never going to be a one to one corollary between any of the material and real life. And I, and I don't sure. think it's intended to be that way Same. because, um, um, you know, for example, I watched um, uh, the Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, the documentary about Miyazaki's working process. And then uh, uh, HBO Max or Max, whatever you want to call it, has another um, uh, another documentary oh, called Neverending Man, is it called? Or the... the, the- the incomplete the, man. Right, or, I know, I know, and it refers to the short that Matt, uh, the, yeah, the caterpillar the, short, yeah, the, the, the caterpillar, the caterpillar. and it's really interesting. Uh, for one, um, that one thing that everybody acknowledges is Miyazaki is not a pleasant fellow, even though he comes off as very charming in the move in in the movie. He's, uh, you know, there are moments where they cut to the animators, and the animators are like you really don't want to get on his bad side. And it's like, and then they were like, everybody wants to please Miyazaki because he is the greatest that ever lived and ever did this. However, the minute that you fail him is more catastrophic than you can ever imagine. It's, it's, it's much worse than just like not understand the assignment. You it's, it's an existential failure. Yeah. And in the, uh, the never ending man or the, uh, the, the never complete man or whatever it is, you see that I, I, there's actually a scene which they capture where he is dressing down an animator that's done something. Um, and he's going through and redraw. I remember very vividly. It was a, it was a image of a woman carrying uh, a baby in a sack and the animator had drawn the um, the the woman sort of hanging, like holding the baby, the sack from the top of it, and and dragging it around. And Miyazaki was like, "No one would ever do this. Uh, <laughs> if you have a baby in a sack, you would be carrying it like a baby, uh, no matter whatever is happening." And then he looks to the animator and he says, "You need to think these things through because you are not drawing an animation; you are creating a person." And what would right. that person do? And then, and then he was like, "And if you can't do this right, you should not be here." And it was like, it's a devastating moment. You know, they actually blur the face of the animator out, but like the <laughs> hangs his head in shame. Yeah, because it it is a very like he like Miyazaki is looking at this person like you do not deserve to be doing this, and it is but like do. yeah, and a lot of people you know, a lot of people have left um, Ghibli and said it was one of the most difficult working relationships they've ever had in their life, but. The other thing that's interesting in the movie, uh, in Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, is the fact that there is three parts to Studio Ghibli, essentially, which is that Izeo Ta- uh, Takahata, um, the director of Grave of the Fireflies and many others, and um, um, Toshio Suzuki, who's, who's been their producer. Um, and they talk about like the, the, the core foundation of Ghibli is really the relationship between those three people. And this movie, The Boy and the Heron, like I think Suzuki has come out and said that, well, ta- um, the grand uncle could really, you could look at him as being Takahata, who is um, Miyazaki's mentor uh, and the person who discovered Miyazaki and the person who kind of Miyazaki looks up to the most. And I, yeah. and I think, you know, in that respect, it kind of becomes interesting but also like then you know like it in a way when you start peeling it apart it's like it doesn't really matter because Miyazaki himself even says I don't understand this movie and I don't understand what I've made right but I want you to experience what is going on in my head and I think there's something beautiful to like experiencing it at a at a sort of more primal level where it's like I don't understand what the Watawara represent, you know, like the, the Watawara are being attacked by pelicans. What does that mean? Or um, the parakeets are trying to take over the kingdom. What does that mean? Um, and you're like, well, yeah, those- it, it becomes like this sort of, in my mind, a slightly futile exercise because what's more beautiful is experiencing the moments for what they are. And and then when, you, when I did that, at least, it became a much... I think what we're all describing is a little bit of friction that we have with the movie in terms of having to try and decipher what moments mean. And no. I, I found that like just by letting go, it became like a frictionless experience by like letting I, go of that, like what it has to mean or what it could mean or anything I, like I that. Didn't, I didn't feel friction. I, but didn't I, feel I feel, at like, all. I feel okay. like what I'm, I'm getting at is like, and I, I think it's sort of a combination of what uh, you two have been saying. It's, it is, yes, like quote unquote, like art and sort of just letting it wash over you and you take from it and have it, you interpret it, just, you know, what these certain moments mean, what certain visuals mean, certain characters and ideas. And, you know, as, mm. as you keep mentioning, Shahir, you know, Miyazaki has, you know, just 
shrug like yeah <laughs> I'm not even and it's sure. beautiful for when you but, yeah to shrug it kind of makes it more beautiful to me yeah but to also go back um and I, and I mentioned this to Yusha here um after I texted you a little bit after I saw the film um I I'm not like a big I do love Miyazaki obviously I'm not like a big though Japanese anime guy but I did see earlier in the earlier in the year this movie called Suzumi mm-hmm, yeah and, yeah um, we've been talking it's a, about it's a doing really, that it's a great it's a great movie um yeah. and it's by a Makoto Shinke. Yeah, did. we we did um, popular. we did um, what was the the your time name. travel? Yeah, your, your we name. did your, your name, name on this podcast. You, but yeah. what I realized though, this movie has a lot in common um, with Suzumi. Um, it does deal with a surreal world, surreal sort of aspects. It, it mostly takes place in the real world, but there is I don't want to spoil it too much, but there is sort of this alternate reality. But it's also about trauma and um, the young girl Suzumi. Um, coming to terms with her mother's death in the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Right. Um, and so there are, it's interesting. There actually are some similarities between both films. And, and I also mentioned to Yusha here, um, Shinkai, he was, a, he's a very big Miyazaki disciple, right? Disciple, excuse me. And, um, he, and in the film, there's like a reference to like a town called Miyazaki mm-hmm. and he's been very open about it. So, but I thought it was interesting that, um, Boy in the Heron reminded me of that film. They actually have a lot in common, and I, I know that movie now is streaming on Crunchyroll. I'm not sure if it's available on digital or yeah. physical media yet, but I, I do recommend that film as well. And it's an interesting compare and contrast, just given the themes of trauma. Well, for example, we did Bell on this podcast um, this year or recently as well, and I think that was a movie that kind of invited, uh, even though that's sort of set in a sort of fantasy world. There's much more of a direct. Uh, this means that kind of um, feeling to that to that movie where you're trying to decipher. And, and as I recall, uh, neither of us were too enamored with uh, the nah. way that movie actually worked. Um, but this one, I, I kind of felt more um, more of a sense of letting go of it. And I, you know, you know, uh, I was having a conversation, Matt, at your Christmas party actually um, with uh, Will Temper, uh, who's oh, been nice. on the show as well, and. We were classic talking about Will. the boy. Yeah, classic Will. I don't know, uh, but go on. <laughs> we were talking about the boy and the hair on. Come back for four years. And it made me think about the this really vivid experience of seeing. I, I don't know if anyone's really seen this movie, uh, but Oliver Say's film Demon Lover, um, which uh, is a American movie about a uh, American firm taking over a, an anime company in Japan, and the movie sort of slowly starts merging what is real and fiction throughout the course of the movie and you're not really sure what's real and what's not in the movie and and Asaye has this sort of really fluid style of movie making where um you know scenes you, you understand that there's a continuity but th- you know like two scenes will be jammed up together that have no business being jammed up together and you're sort of spending the whole time trying to figure out what it was and at, at any rate my experience of watching that movie I remember walking out of it that going I don't quite have the vocabulary to discuss this movie in a way that makes it easier to understand or helpful to understand. But I do know that the movie affected me in some way where even if I don't understand, you know, like a lot of times if I don't understand a movie, I often feel confident that I have the vocabulary to explain it, to understand it, or to even like think through it. And I guess what I was getting at in Demon Lover was that I felt it was incumbent upon me to come to the movie's terms as opposed for the movie to meet my terms. Um, mm. and, and that's kind of the way I feel about the boy and the heron, which is that, uh, I, I feel that the movie is operating on a level of fluid imagination where there are some things that kind of connect to each other. This, you know, like imagine being Alice falling into Wonderland for the first time. And it's like, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, that's the kind of experience of watching the boy and the heron for me, which is that I don't know if I understood all of it. In fact, certainly walking out of the movie, I was like, I'm not sure what I make of all of that. But I do know, like my son, that something about it kind of cut to the heart of me in a way that I was not expecting. And for me, there's a moment in this film where uh, Mojito meets his mother or meets a young version of his mother. Um, Back to the Future style, or, or uh, the film I was going to. I was, I was really, it was really jarring when Huey Lewis started playing during the film. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go back in time. Um, I was thinking of uh, what is the Celine Siama film that came out, uh, Petite Maman. Um, you know, where uh, a little girl meets the her mother as a little girl, and they basically get to become friends together. And it was sort of a similar moment in here, but uh, at, towards the end of the movie. 
Mahito kind of explains to his mother, who is now his age, what's going to happen to her if she follows the path of of being his mother. Um, you know, which is that she will die, and she says to him, uh, "I'm okay with that because the I would have become your mother, and that's a greater mm. gift than I can." than I can ever imagine. And boy, let me tell you, when I'm in the theater sitting next to my son, who I know loves his mother more than anything on the planet and like, you know, is is clearly affected by this. Well, I am, you know, a ball of mush in this movie. And I'm like, I don't understand how we actually got to this point. I don't understand what the doors are. I don't understand what the parakeets are doing. This tower thing with these blocks, I'm like, I don't get any of this. But But that moment like really hit me in a way that was profound and i and i found myself going it's okay to let go of trying to understand what the movie is as opposed to just being in the moment of that moment and i right. and i and i found that to be a a sort of richer way to think about the movie for me personally yeah i yeah. i like the mo- i really like the moment that you know when he was with the the granduncle um, yeah. you know that whole thing being free of malice yeah. Um and he shows and he shows the scar. I mean it's a pretty I guess I would say like super graphic scene, but when we see Mikito, you know, literally hurt himself, yeah. like gush blood. Yeah. Um but I, I I think that's the moment of the one of the moments of the film to me that really speaks of its humanity. Right. And sort of um I guess even though if we all have not gone to dream worlds and, you know, communicating with younger versions of our deceased relatives mm. that just you know we're all flawed in some way or just mm. we all have stuff to deal with and so um and i think i don't want to say it's like the summation of the film but just sort of it's really the moment in a way i feel like mihito recognizes his own growth mm. and um that 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 part certainly moved me very deeply and that that just that recognition and then i think that's sort of the moment in a way where he can recognize he can then return to the real world and sort of just keep living his life with his um this his new newish, his new newish family yeah um, his father new his, mother and seven right, seven right. maids <laughs> <laughs> well i think um the i think in that moment as well you know like there was a beautiful thing with that moment which is that when he hit himself in the head my son has this thing which is that he's always like does a movie have blood violence he's like i'm okay with violence but when it becomes blood violence i'm not okay he's like you know he's yeah. he's not interested in it or he's he's more like i don't want to watch that his first uh, film he her- ever makes will be named blood violence blood- I-, I was telling him he should <laughs> ma- he's actually written a comic book character called blood violence and uh, yeah, yeah there we go um, he's really Turn fun off the blood mode on the super nintendo <laughs> yeah. mortal Kombat. what's That's funny a I- I- abcabb on genesis I don't have the heart to break it to him, but Blood Violence, the character that he's created, is a lot like Ghost Rider. It's pretty much Ghost Rider, um, but it's but it's but blood, but but blood blood. Uh, and better. But bitter, and it's his own version of it. Like he came up with essentially kind of the Ghost Rider's um, backstory uh, on his own, but it was, but it's he's called it Blood Violence. Um, coming soon to a comic book a comic book store near starring Nicolas Cage. <laughs> he'll do um, it. You know he'll do it. Uh, yeah, I know. I know he'll do it. Um, uh, but uh, the moment when Mojito hits himself, Mojito hits himself in the head, I remember it was kind of a jarring moment. Like, And my son was like, what is he doing? And then later, like, again, after the movie, my son said, oh, that was his him being mean to himself. That was his malice. Yeah. And I was like, that's a, you know, the movie's directly spelling that out. But I was like, I, I didn't understand it in the moment. I still kind of find it difficult to understand. But it, it's interesting that the movie points to it not as like Mahito basically doing the thing that we're all thinking he's doing, which is trying to make the bullies um, attack on him seem much worse than it is and basically trying to get out of school. But to clarify it as that is my own internal malice yeah. um, was like, oh, that is a, that's a much harder way to look at this story. And it's not quite connecting the dots in the way I think it is. And I need to... I want to sit with that more because he's sort of equating self-harm as malice, as outward malice, and he needs to let go of that. And I was like, ah, that's – I again, I was kind of t- struck by that. And again, I, I, I just – one of the things I thought is like what a wonderful thing for my son to have seen that is far richer than what I probably would have explained it as. You know, the way parents explain that kind of, that kind sure. of thing. This is far richer and much more interesting and nuanced. Yeah. I mean, again, I uh, – the – the, for lack of the better term, I keep going back to the word vibe, which I I, I find gets weirdly cheapened. Yeah. Um. Because what is what is a vibe? 
uh, I, I was, uh, I think this was some more news podcast that was talking about this, but like a vibe is a vibration. Like it is, it is something that actually does have an effect on things and bounces off stuff and affects the world around it, even though it is uh, uh, borderline ephemeral, not like a rock, you know. And um, the thing I think I really like about you know all the moments that you've both described in, in this movie in general is that um, the you can do the try to figure out stuff, but the movie does also really. Um, let you not if you want. I mean, Sheer, you even said you you didn't want to, and that's that's super. That's cool. The what I really liked about it was sometimes in films I'll be like, let's go Bell. Let's be brought up Bell, right? I'll be like, oh well, this means that, and that means this, and this is an allegory for this, and da 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 da. And I never really did that with this movie. Like, I didn't give a shit about the. I mean, not that's the wrong way to put it. I was never like, what do the parakeets represent? Like, I never like because it's not the point. And it's yeah. not interesting. Right. right. Um, uh, but I think the stuff that got me thinking uh, in the in the in more of the puzzle pieciness on top of the story sort of vibing over you or washing over you was literally that Miyazaki was like, oh, I don't know. Like, it doesn't you know, I just want to show you the thing and like looking at it based around the actual human being whose mind it came from. Like that was the that. And again, it's not so much as like, ah, I'm fitting these Lego blocks into a perfect thing. And it definitely meant that he loves pork chop sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's not that it's that you can kind of glean where emotional resonance from his life, career, family, etc. has put into this this fantastical story. Um, and it lets you maybe feel like you know him a little bit better you can also internalize it and see like much like you mentioned uh your son Shahir uh, did with various scenes how you did uh zach even stuff you said so like i don't know i i am a huge fan i guess if i had to finish off what i was thinking about this movie i'm a huge fan of films where you can engage with it on both an intellectual and emotional level not just one way but two ways so like squaring the amount of 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 interactivity you can have with it or thought after the fact and this was like this felt to me like an extra layer on a Miyazaki film and I didn't know you could do that (laughs) and it was just a really nice surprise so uh yeah I mean if it hasn't been clear yet uh this movie uh rocked my socks um one Zach I want to kind of give you the final word here but one one thing that I thought was interesting um, that I looked up was that the there was much much uh, made of the final line of Miyazaki's last film, The Wind Rises, which is the I think the line is, uh, "You we must live, um, right? And and we must go on. Wind is rising. We must we must live. Yeah, we must live. Um, and there's an interesting thing, which is that Miyazaki announced uh, his retirement uh, right after that film, sort of feeling like. His retirement wasn't brought about brought about by um, uh, his inability to do things. It was more that he felt like he wasn't sure what he had to say anymore or what uh, what he could contribute anymore to the conversation. And he also felt that the, the, the sort of nature of animation and what he did was kind of changing and uh, no longer as in demand as it once was. And uh, the interesting thing, I think, was to think about what the the original title for this film is, uh, which is an adaptation of a very well-beloved uh, children's book uh, or, you know, novel in uh, in Japan called How Do You Live? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think... Even just like framing the film as an as a kind of call and response to the wind rises, um, in terms of like what Miyazaki's career has meant, and the kind of you know, and then and then thinking about how do you live in terms of the tower of blocks that the the grandfather has created, which is imperfect and like requires someone else to carry on um, to do what he could not achieve. I think the film again opens up in an interesting way, um, and I I sort of. You know, it's broad and it's nebulous, um, but I think the sort of taking it as a response to how do you live uh, and looking at this as potentially being the last Miyazaki film, I think it's an it's an interesting open text to reflect upon life as we move forward. And I think what's great about it is it's not one lesson or one moral theme or anything like that. It's going to be this sort of 
ongoing conversation this movie has created that will last a while. And I think that's that's an interesting way to read the film for me. Zach, I was I'm sorry, I rambled on there, but I was curious, you know, like what you would what you would ultimately take away from the movie or what you would offer to our listeners who are thinking about this movie. Um, that's a great question. Well, I do want to point out they they do reference the film. Mm. I mean the book rather directly in the film. Yeah. It is it was his mother's copy. Yeah, and, and that's um, what sends him off into the into the world, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um and I remember reading Miyazaki, he sort of one of the reasons he made this was sort of like something to leave behind for his grandson, mm-hmm. if I'm understanding. Yeah. Uh, as he goes, quote unquote, into the next world, something to sort of leave behind, which I also, I think, ties in thematically. And um, I think what I have to say, I think it's, uh, it's sort of what I said before. It's sort of, it's sort of a represent, it's a representation of the man. And it's sort of, and as we talked about today, it's a representation of the man. And it's a representation of his work. Um, just the imagination, just sort of, you know, obviously, you know, World War II in Japan and his mother and the effects of the war after had such a very profound effect on him. And I, and it's, I, I think it is, it's a, it's a beautiful film. Hmm. And, um, look, it's, it's very clearly, I'm still processing it as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a challenging film to process. And I, and I think more than anything, that's an invitation to go see it. Yeah. Well, everyone, this has been the only podcast about the film The Boy and the Heron. Zach, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about this. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, look forward. And if, we, if there's still a film industry in four years, I look forward to coming back <laughs> in four years. In the, in the interim, before that, where can folks find you? Um, I'm actually not on social media anymore, but um, you can write me in care of Shahir Dowd at 742 Evergreen Terrace. <laughs> Springfield. Um, I want to plug Shahir's next film, a remake of Carnosaur, the 1993 <laughs> right? um, Jurassic Park schlock knockoff. And that's, I that's might as label. well plug the next episode of Extra Credits. Um, I deep dive into 1990s uh, obscure serials. Um, Sprinkle Sprangles, Bonolitos. Um, and uh, that's a, that's going to be a really great episode. And I highly encourage everyone to check that one out. It's funny. It starts, it, it like many good video essays do, it starts with a dissection of Chex Quest. Okay. Um, which I don't know if you remember Chex Quest, either of you. Okay, yeah. Zach does. Chex Quest, you hear. All my life is obscure pop culture. I know nothing else. Right. Chex Quest was a CD-ROM that came with Chex Serial, and it was, back in the day, a pretty decent Doom clone, but reskinned to be about Chex Serial. (laughs) Um, And there is a remake. It is not good, or not as good. Uh, So if you get a chance, check. I should do an episode on fucking Chex Quest. There you go. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) All right. Uh, Shahir. What's up? When you are not crashing... Uh, an asteroid that turns into a multi-dimensional tower into your very backyard. Where can folks find you? You can find me building the legacy of my life at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Or my company site, suvanova.com. That's S-U-V-A-N-O-V-A. Matt, when you are devouring all the holiday cereals that you can get, where can people find you? You can find me doing my best Robert Pattinson impression, uh, pretending to be a bird while chopping that all down over at my website at M-A-T-T-H-W-K-R-O-L.com. My life and works. Don't go there. There's nothing new. <laughs> also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or P-S-N on Twitter, uh, Matthew Kroll and Blue Sky. Also, please do check out the good works. We are doing over at Extra Credits and Extra History. Yo, hey, boys, yesterday hit three mil. Whoa. <laughs> It it was, that's too sarc- that's, that sounds sarcastic. Yeah. I know. It's, that's, that's, it's that's a better. slow clap. Yeah. Uh, it, it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, we, my, my studio director and my social media uh, manager and I had a bet on whether – you can look at the analytics and like whether or not it would happen before – uh, the break during our break or after in the new year. I said after I was way off because we've been doing these really lovely shorts called worst dads in history. Hey, and no, not dad. you. I'm talking like <laughs> Ivan, the terrible right cool. Yeah. Uh, and the shorts in the algorithm have like catapulted us up. And by the time this comes out, on extra credit side, you will be able to see an episode uh, called uh, Roguelite is the new RPG, where we look at how RPG mechanics went into video games uh, a certain way years ago. And it feels like roguelite mechanics are kind of being the next step of like, let's kind of put this into everything lightly. And on extra history, 
we have an episode entitled, which I'm sure will not uh, anger anyone, The Real War on Christmas. Oh, mm. good. Uh, I'll say nothing else. I'll, I feel very mellow about this. That topic, should but. be out. Uh, it's about the plum pudding riots. Um, <laughs> but uh, that should be out by the time this airs as well. So lots of lots of holiday treats for everyone. And for everyone who's uh, spending Christmas Day with us, please write us in at onlymoviepodcast.gmail.com and tell us what you watched on Christmas Day. Was it The Boy and the Heron? Was it Home Alone? Was it Last Christmas? Was it Violent Night? Was it uh, It's a Wonderful rare Life? Exports. Yeah, rare, rare exports. Yeah, Rare Exports. Jingle uh, All the Way. Jingle All Actually, the Way. Yeah, email us in. And let. And I also want to know where you watched it. Okay. Because, like, it's, it's so fun. On was my, it on my Apple Watch uh, as it was intended. Yeah, yeah. Because I think Aquaman comes out on Christmas. Oh, man. Comes out. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes, it comes out a little right before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, the only thing, should I? I By the I time still, this comes out, it'll be, it, it will be out. Yeah. I, I, I still have my beard Congratulations, Trevor, on your starring role. Yeah, and, and I still have the Sequel. costume. I was like, should I, go to, should I go to opening night dressed up as Aquaman? I think like, yes. you should. I think I should. Should yeah. I? Yeah. And I should go you to, like, char- the smallest junkie like theater. Square mascot. Yeah. You're just such a big fan of the such franchise. A, yeah, such a huge fan. I walk in going, ah, oh, I was looking for the holdovers. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> but we will be at you again talking in your ear holes next week. Bye, everyone, and Merry Bye. Christmas. And, Bye-bye. and love to you. What do you say at Christmas Happy time? Happy holidays. Happy New Year. To, all good things all, for next year, everyone. To all a great night. Is that Sloppy right? Hollandaz. What? <laughs> It's good. It's tasty. You put on eggs. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Nailed it. I got it. Now I get it.